You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Well, isn't that wonderful? There's just nothing like that. I, when they told me I was going to have to follow a baptism video, I was like, you got to be kidding me. I, I'm, I'm a crier at the best of times, and baptism videos just do me in, baptisms do. And that's my fourth time. Now, I watched it before I came online because I told them I'm going to just be a sobbing mess. And then both times last night, it's just overwhelming. Love the test. Love the smiles when they come up out of the water. Just such a delight what Jesus Christ does. Well, it's such a privilege for me to be here and for Cindy. We love this church. God has given us such a wonderful partnership with all of you. So thankful for your elders and your pastors, all of your staff, Uh, certainly your senior pastor. He's such a dear friend to me and to us. He's a man I look up to immensely. He's got, I believe, a unique gifting by God and unique calling on his life. And uh, there's no doubt about that. I thought that the first time I met him, and that's just been strengthened. I know you pray for him, but can I encourage you to pray even more? With a a special calling that's upon him, and you can't miss it with what's happening here and how God's using him way beyond the walls of this church, Uh, there's an extra amount of weight that really I don't think many of us can even begin to understand. So would you pray for him? even more than you have been. And, and I know you're blessed by this church and this ministry. And we are. We just count it such a, a joy to be connected with all of you and our elders and staff do as well. So you can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. We're going to look at the first eight verses. As you're turning there, I really need to make a confession. And uh, uh, Cindy and I watch some movies together, not a lot, but we have watched. We're, we're in our 37th year of marriage. We've watched a lot of movies over those years. She will not watch or ad, watch adventure movies or action movies. So that means I get to watch a lot of what some call chick flicks, and I've watched my share of those. And I'm going to confess, I love a good love story. I, I'll even confess this, and I might lose my man card over it, but I cry at a lot of them. I, I just really love a love story. It's exciting. And, and I've been, I can't tell you some of the movies because you'll just laugh your head off at some of the ones I love and have enjoyed. But uh, some of my favorite love stories actually come from the Bible. And one of my favorites is found in the Old Testament in the book of Hosea. And if you know that book, you, you understand why I'm saying that. If you don't, I encourage you to go home and read it, the Old Testament book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet of God. He was a single man. God called Hosea to go and marry a woman, a specific woman, by the name of Gomer. Now, if you're pregnant and expecting a girl, and you don't want anybody else in her class to have the same name, that's a pretty safe bet. <laughs> But I would recommend against it because God called Hosea to marry Gomer knowing she was an immoral woman. And he married her and they had three children together. And for sure, one of those children, Hosea knew was not his and perhaps all three. And yet he continued to love her. She left him numerous times, and he continued to love her. One time when she left, it seems she got caught up in prostitution, and it sadly so often happens in that. She actually became a slave of a man. He owned her. Her husband, Hosea, went and found her and literally bought her out of slavery. He redeemed her, brought her home, and loved her continually. Such a wonderful love story in a strange sort of way because of the love of a husband with this unconditional, unfailing love. And God had Hosea, his prophet, do that as a visual image for the nation of Israel of how God loves. And I love that story because that's how God has loved me. And if you're a Christian, that's how God has loved you. 
even when we've been unfaithful, even when we've been in those times, he has loved us with an unconditional love. And so I pray that sort of setting will sort of kind of sit in your heart as we look at these first eight verses of Romans. And so I want to pray, and then we're going to walk through these verses together. So let's bow in prayer. Father, we humble ourselves before you. What a joy it is to gather with the family, to, to just be in, in Christian fellowship, to to be encouraging one another and edifying and building up one another, but especially to come and to raise our voices together in worship. What wonderful songs we've sung, exalting you. More of you, less of us. And Father, I pray now as we look into your word, I would ask that what is, what is said is accurate and true. If it isn't, you would purge it from my mouth or from the ears of the hearer. Help us to test everything according to your word. But Father, I pray right now you would speak through your word personally and powerfully to each one. You know every person here. You know everything about them. And I pray specifically for those who are weary and are worn out on the performance thing, on the religious thing. I pray that you would bring release, that you would bring, you restore the joy of their salvation this day. So speak to us now. We humble ourselves under your word in Jesus' name. Amen. What I'd like to do is structure our time in these eight verses with, by asking and answering three questions. And the reason I want to sort of organize my, my sermon with three questions is because this is what Paul does actually in Romans. He's never visited the church in Rome. All the other letters he's written, he's actually planted the church or been there, but he's never been to the church in Rome. He's heard about them. He knows a few people who are there, but he's writing to say, here's some things you need to know before I, Lord willing, can come and visit you. And as he writes, he writes this very interesting interactive letter because Paul has been in synagogue after synagogue on street corner after street corner with Christian group and with Jews and with Gentiles so he knows how they're thinking so as he writes he presents some truth and then he writes a question because he knows if he was there they would be going but 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 and so he writes their question answers their question goes on with some more truth then another question and if you read the early chapters of Romans that's what it is many questions and so I'm going to ask and answer three questions from these verses. Our first question comes in verses 1 to 4. Here's the question. Can we save ourselves? Can we save ourselves? Now you're probably thinking, many of you, well, if you really knew our pastor, you wouldn't even ask that question because we're a well-taught church. And, but it's interesting. Paul goes relentlessly from chapter 2 to Romans all the way really through to chapter 6, pounding on them over and over with this issue they have of trying to find some standing with God by something they do. And sadly, that seeps into our churches and our way of thinking. Even as Christians, after we're saved by grace, so often many of us are trying to walk by effort and by performance. Look in your Bibles, verse 1 of Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
And so here we have Paul addressing this issue, really, presenting as he has been. There's really two options here, two ways of thinking. You can either make yourself acceptable to God by something you do, going to church, being religious, practicing certain traditions. You can undo your past sins. You can make yourself holy and acceptable. That's option one. Or there's nothing you can do like that, and you're completely unable, and the only hope you have is that someone else would save you, that someone else would deal with your sin that you cannot undo. You can't back up your life. You can't change anything. And so someone else needs to do it for you. And Paul's really addressing these two options. And he's pretty clear here. And what he does actually is appeal to Abraham. Why does he do that? Because from chapter two onwards, he's been addressing the Jews. Chapter one, specifically 18 to 32, two, he's primarily addressing the Gentiles, but now he's going after the Jews. Why? Because they were so religious and they had so misinterpreted the Old Testament and they had so bought into a lie that I can do things to make myself acceptable to God. So he appeals to the sort of pinnacle, the, the one who started the whole Jewish nation, Father Abraham. He says, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? According to the flesh means what was gained by Abraham by something he did? According to the flesh is something in his own power, his own ability. What was gained by Abraham according to something he did? Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Now, verse 4 kind of ties right in with that. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. You go to work this week, and at the end of the week, your employer gives you a paycheck. You do not walk into your employer after you get the paycheck and say, thank you for this gift. Why don't you do that? Because it's not a gift. Because you've earned it. You've worked for it. It's your right. It's your due. It's what's expected. And so Paul here says, if Abraham did something, anything religious, anything of his own flesh, anything he could do to make himself acceptable to God, then he should boast because he has done it. I've cleaned up my life. I mean, you don't hear that in baptisms here, do you? Somebody get up and say, man, I just improved. I figured it out. I made up for what I had done wrong. And, and, and you know, I made myself acceptable. And because God saw what I did, he has now welcomed me into his family. That, that's, what, that's what the Jews were thinking. That's what Paul's addressing here. And he says, if Abraham was justified by works, verse 2, he has something to boast about. But I love the explanation at the end, but not before God. There's, just, there's a reality. I, I want to tell you this morning, I don't know where you're at in your spiritual life, but no one, no matter how zealous or committed to any sort of religious belief, no one will stand before God on that day, which is coming for all of us. And God will say, I see what you have done. And because of that, welcome into heaven. Paul's just addressing it. He has over and over and it's straight up here again. It just is not going to happen. It's interesting in verse 3, which we kind of skipped over, he, he appeals, and I love his first line, what does Scripture say? I love that. I know you're a church that comes under that. What's the authority in this church? It's not the elders, it's not the pastors, it's not the leaders, it's God's word. Why? Because it's through God's revealed word we understand and know about and come to relationship with the Lord of the church whose name is Jesus. And so I love Paul here. He's like, let's appeal to the ultimate authority. Let's go to the Old Testament, the authority, the written word of God. What does scripture say? And he quotes from Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, believed the Lord, and it counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted to Abraham his faith as righteousness. 
Paul, Paul's, like the Jews knew this. They had memorized that verse. It, it seems pretty obvious to us, but what happens is we keep seeping and slipping back into this religious mindset and the fact that I kind of need to do something. I love the word counted in that, ver uh, that verse, and it's all through chapter 4 into chapter 5. Counted, that word literally means that economic and legal meaning. It's got a specific meaning of crediting something to an account. You all have a bank account, and in your bank account you have deposits and withdrawals. Most of us have more withdrawals than deposits. Hopefully the total is not higher in the withdrawals than the deposits. This word is literally the idea that someone put a deposit in your account, which was so significant, so huge, that it completely wiped out all the withdrawals. Abraham believed God, and because of his faith in God, God credited to Abraham's account something that made Abraham righteous, holy. It's a wonderful reminder Paul just saying, it's not this works thing, it's not anything you can do, it's not religion, it's faith. He's, he's taught this in Romans chapter 3, he taught it in verse 24, Esau there, we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemptions in Christ Jesus. In Romans chapter 5, verse 17, he says, for if by one man's trespass, that one man is Adam. If by Adam's sin, Paul's contrasting Adam and Jesus Christ in chapter 5, for if by one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man because Adam sinned one time, just one sin, it condemned him and all of us because one sin is enough to make us a lawbreaker. And by his one sin, death entered the human race. And so that's what Adam brought. But I love this frail phrase, much more. He used it a number of times in chapter five. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. Aren't you thankful for an abundance of grace? For those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift. It's interesting. You read Paul in Romans. He talks about free gift. You realize that's redundant? What's a gift? If you give me a gift and I pull out money to pay you, you say, put your money away. It's a gift. What are you doing? But he calls it a free gift. Why? Because they weren't getting it. He wants to emphasize it's a free gift. Salvation is a free gift. The free gift of righteousness will reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Paul says, listen, Jews, you're, you've got it all wrong right now, so let's go back to the beginning. Even the first one, Abraham, was not saved by anything he did but by the free gift of grace. But sadly, the Jews were so messed up on this. They had such a twisted version of reality. And you're saying, well, we don't have that today. Really? You tell me there aren't churches all over our country where people are coming and being taught and believing because of their religious duty, their devotion, their zealousness, their whatever it is, their, their traditions, they are making themselves acceptable to God. And sadly, some of us, when we were saved, we understood it was all of grace, but now we're trying to live the Christian life by I'll try harder, I'll be better, I'll show, I'll do, I'll whatever. It's interesting, Paul here, Using Abraham, he actually goes on in verses 9 to 12 to talk about Abraham's circumcision. And it's a little strange. I was actually thinking about initially about preaching 9 to 12, and I thought, I can't really do that as a guest preacher, go preach on circumcision. That might be an issue. But, but you kind of like wonder, you read it like, really, Paul? This is kind of inappropriate. Why does it matter when he was circumcised? But look what he says in verse 9. Is this blessing, and that's the blessing he outlines in 6 to 8, which we're going to get to, is salvation, is, is forgiveness of sins, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Who are the circumcised? The religious Jews. Is this blessing of forgiveness and salvation only for religious people? 
Only for the religious Jews is circumcised, or is it also for the uncircumcised? Can a Gentile who's never been in a temple, never practiced one religious tradition, can he be saved or she be saved in any way? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. He repeats again Genesis 15, 6, Romans 4, 3. Now look at what he asks in verse 10, though. How then was it counted to him? If Abraham was counted righteousness, how was that? How did that happen? How did God count it to righteousness? You would expect him to answer the how question, but then look what he says. He asks another question, a when question. Was it his circumcision and being counted righteous, was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Now you're kind of reading that going... That's just way too much information. Who really cares? I mean, come on. What, what does it matter? The timing of his circumcision with his statement in Genesis chapter 15. Well, you see, the Jews were so twisted, they had really come to believe in what one author called salvation by surgery. Because the Jews actually believed unless a male was circumcised, he could not, even in, under the gospel of Jesus Christ, he could not be saved. They had so twisted all the way up to Jesus, and then even many in the uh, understanding and hearing the gospel still wanted to add some works. Salvation's like 75% God, 25% me. They, they were kind of twisted on that, way over the top. They were so twisted on that. I mean, it, some of their writings, the Book of Jubilee, which is written between 100 and 200 AD. It's not scripture, it's not inspired, uh, but it's written from the time just after the New Testament. And so a lot of information about sort of what the thinking was of the Jews in those days, the book of Jubilee says this, everyone that is born the flesh of whose foreskin is not circumcised on the eighth day belongs not to the children of the covenant of the Lord, which was he made with Abraham, but he belongs to the children of destruction, nor is there moreover any sign on him that he's the Lord's, but he will be destroyed and slain from the earth. Another Jewish commentary from those days says, circumcision saves from hell. Another one said, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. Still another commentary by the Jewish rabbi said this, listen to this, Abraham sits before the gate of hell and does not allow any circumcised Israelite to enter there. They actually believed that if a circumcised male Israelite uh, went into apostasy and then died, his circumcision would be supernaturally reversed. Because there was salvation by surgery. They had so put the emphasis on human effort, human traditions, human religious practices. I mean, it got so bad. They actually formed a party. You find them in the New Testament, the party of the circumcision. They formed a club. They formed an organization. You could join up and were the party of the circumcision. They, 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 I, think about it. Like, okay, who's going to sign up? This, is, this was in Paul's day. The party of this, I think they probably had vests or jackets, you know, and I kind of wonder what the crest would be on their jacket. Would it be a scalpel or a pair of scissors, you know, and, and when they met somebody of the party that was wearing the jacket, their greeting might be snip, snip, and they'd say snip, snip to you too. Like you think, well, that's, that's a little over the top. That's crazy. Well, in Acts chapter 15, when the gospel's spreading from Jerusalem to Judea to the other post parts of the world, and Gentiles are getting saved, there's this huge debate that it's just not enough by faith in Christ, by grace through faith, you have to do something yourself. You've got to get religious. And so they were teaching you had to add circumcision. In Acts 15.1, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, listen, you cannot be saved. 
How many people in our day and age, unless you dress like us, talk like us, don't do that, do that, put this religious tradition, this practice in place, you cannot be saved. Here's a timeline which is really interesting uh, just to help you, and that's why he talks about Abraham's circumcision. So uh, Genesis 12 is the first covenant with God giving to Abraham, and he's about 75 years old. God reiterates that covenant in Genesis 15 when he's probably six, 85 years old. We know at 86 he had Ishmael, and it was just before that, so probably 85 years old. That's where we find this verse, and he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now the Jews say Abraham was counted righteous because of circumcision and keeping the law, but Paul goes into that timeline in 9 to 12 just to say that doesn't make any sense at all because it was 14 years later in Genesis 17 when the command for circumcision came. So if he's called righteous in chapter 15 and it's not till 14 years later he's even given the command for circumcision, how could circumcision have anything to do with his being counted righteous? And it's not for another 425 years that the law is given to, from, as, through Moses. So Paul's just given a simple sort of timeline here. There's no way you can save yourself. If one of the most zealous, committed people, Abraham, couldn't do it, if the Jews in Paul's day, the Pharisees included, who were zealous, remember what Paul said in Philippians 3 about how he used to be a Pharisee and kept all the law, did all these things, that he said, I counted all as what? Loss or rubbish. It's like, doesn't do it. So the, the answer to can we save ourselves is clearly no. You can't do a thing. You can be the most zealous religious person you've ever met, and it does not move you one inch closer to be in a right standing with your creator, God. I just want to tell you that. Something you have to come to understand before you'll understand and embrace the truth that will save your soul. So can we save ourselves? No. Now we have two more questions. I want to go to this question. What is the result of true salvation? If I can't save myself, how do I get saved? We're going to answer that in a minute. But first I want to just look at what's the result of true salvation. So I'm going to skip verse 5 and go to verses 6 to 8. Is that allowed here? Pastor Robbie never skips a verse. I'm sure the elders wouldn't allow that. We're going to come back to verse 5. So if that bothers you, I'm skipping it. I just, I just want to look at the result of, the outcome of true salvation. And then we're going to come back to verse 5 and see how do I experience that salvation, okay? And I'm actually going to mix you up a little more. We're going to start with verse 7, go to verse 8, then back to verse 6, okay? I think that's allowed. So let's just do that. What's the result of true salvation? Look at verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Is that not wonderful news? Blessed are those whose sins are covered. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds. You know what that word means, lawless deeds? Blessed are those who have rebelled against their creator. Blessed are you rebels. Blessed are you lawbreakers. And you go, well, that's not nice to call us that. That's reality. If I've broken the law, I'm a lawbreaker. The Bible says, listen, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you've been saved today, do you, are you not thankful and feeling blessed that God forgave your sin? And I love the little phrase, covered over. That's an imagery from the Old Testament of the blood covering over, the animal sacrifice, but we know animal sacrifices weren't sufficient. Blessed are those whose sins are covered over by the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of Christ. What a wonderful statement here. The result of salvation is you have been blessed by the forgiving of your sins. Are you guilty? 
this is what you have to come to understand. This is why you've got to understand all of your effort and all of your religious stuff and all of your pay it forward, make it up, uh, pay for past sins, practice certain traditions. None of that has done anything because you're guilty still and, and that sin can only be forgiven through God declaring you forgiven, not by anything you can do. But he goes on in verse 8 to another blessing. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Here we find that word count again. Blessed is the one. God blesses us by declaring us not guilty. He doesn't bless us just by saying you're forgiven. He actually blesses us by declaring you not guilty. Now think about that. I am a guilty sinner. I, I've by my own choice and volition chosen to go my own way, do my own thing, to sin against God. I'm a rebel, a lawbreaker. That's who I am. In my natural state, that's my identity. That's true of every one of us. Unless you understand the bad news, you'll never embrace the good news of the gospel. Unless you understand that everything you had been putting your hope and confidence in has left you hopeless and helplessly still in your sin. But God says the great news is blessed are you because I've forgiven you and I've declared you not guilty. Now think of that. Not just past sins. I, I've been declared not guilty of my past sin. But, but get this. I've been declared not guilty of the sins I've yet to commit that I will commit. Now, is that not an amazing kind of love? To love your spouse or your parents or your friends that way, not just for the forgiving them for the past, but knowing they're going to sin against you. Blessed are the ones who are forgiven and declared not guilty. But then he goes on. Let's go jump back to verse 6. Just as David, this King David, he's actually quoting from Psalm 32 in verses 7 and 8. Just as David, David's faith, just, sorry, just as David also speaks of the blessing. So David experienced the same kind of blessing as Abraham did. We've always been saved the same way by faith, never by works. Just as David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom what? God counts righteousness apart from works. Is this not wonderful? I mean, just just. Stop and think about this. I, a guilty sinner, at the moment of my salvation, because I repented of my sin and confessed a faith in Jesus Christ, I've received the free gift of grace, which has forgiven my sin and which has declared me no longer guilty. It's called justification, just as if I never sinned. I'm forgiven, and now I stand before God as one who has never sinned. But that's not all. Verse 6, and I'm also counted as righteous. Justification doesn't mean just as if I never sinned. It also means just as if I've always done right. Because God declares at that moment of salvation, it's called justification. He declares that this guilty sinner is no longer guilty and that he is now, or she is now, completely righteous. Why? Because uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 explains it quite well. It's on all the shirts of the baptism. Good choice. He who knew no sin, tell me his name. Jesus. It's not a trick question. Some of you are like, don't answer, because they always trick us up. He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us, for me, for me. He who knew no sin took on my sin on the cross. He paid my price. He bore my punishment. He died my death so that I, the guilty sinner, would be declared no longer guilty. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. The perfect obedience, the perfect righteousness, the perfect holiness of Jesus is now declared to be mine. 
Justification is such a wonderful truth. That's what Paul's saying to these people here. Blessed are you. It's such a wonderful blessing. Your salvation, listen, your past sins, present and future sins have all been wiped out. They've all been taken care of. That's why my favorite verse, I think, in the Bible is Romans 8.1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Aren't you thankful for that? What a blessing. There, there's nothing we could do to earn that. Amen. It, it's God's favor. It's God's grace. It's God's gift. Such a wonderful reminder. That's why we love singing about grace and about Jesus. I mean, we never tire, do we? I mean, we've been at it for 16 years in our church, and, and uh, we've been a harvest for just 10 years, but, but I mean, it's, every weekend, it's kind of the same order of service, and then, I don't know about you, but I never come going, oh, here we go again. I, every week, it's like, I just can't wait. I just can't wait. I, we're so excited to come here to be with all of you. We used to sneak down some Saturday nights before we had a Saturday night service, and, and it's just, isn't it wonderful to gather together? And one of my favorites, we, first we sing about Jesus, and we exalt him. Why not? And then we sing about grace. We love singing. Amazing Grace, that's my favorite song I think I've ever. Is it yours? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a... Unless you understand what God has done, you, you, that's, amazing grace is not amazing like it needs to be. So can I save myself? No. What's the result of true salvation? All of those blessed truths of justification. Now we come back to verse 5 and ask and answer this important question because you may be asking this here this morning. How can I experience this blessing? How can I experience this blessing? And, and I, here, here's the thing. I don't mean just in salvation because that's specifically what Paul's talking about. But I think a lot of us, after we're saved, have lost the joy of our salvation and so I want to try to help us with some application this morning to recover that joy and delight of experiencing the blessing. Let me, let me just before we look at verse 5, let me just take you back to something Jesus taught in Matthew 11 because I, I really think this is important. In Matthew 11, the, the verses 28 to, to 30, you all well know. Sometimes we forget the setting. In, in Matthew eleven twenty, Jesus denounces two cities, the cities of Bethsaida and Chorazin. These are two cities up around the Sea of Galilee, and there's three cities Jesus spent a lot of his ministry in, and these were two of them. And these were incredibly Jewish cities. They were steeped in Jewish teaching and the rabbis, and they knew the Old Testament, and Jesus taught there and shared the gospel of, of salvation in him. And then they re so rejected it all, and they, re they just stuck to their religious traditions that Jesus actually calls out woes upon them. And then in that setting, with that in mind, he then goes to, says this in verse 28 of Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. I love that. Come to me all who labor. That word labor means weary. Come to me all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Weary and heavy laden from what? From trying to earn a standing with God. From counting on religious practices and traditions from trying to make yourself acceptable and good enough. Come to me, all who are weary or labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. He says, it goes on to say, rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you. It's easy and my burden is light. If you have been caught up in this performance thing of trying to earn your standing with God to obtain salvation, or Christian, if you have fallen into the trap of trying to walk in a certain way that God would still love you and accept you, I would say you're experiencing this weariness of your soul. 
and you've lost all of your joy and all of your delight. You have no rest at all. This is why it's important to ask and answer this question, how can I experience this blessing? The Jews were so messed up in Paul's day on tradition and practices and laws in the temple and being saved by what I do or what I don't do. And so many today in our churches, I see it in our church and I see it a lot of places. In my own life, I've experienced this exhausted with this relentless trying to be better to achieve or to keep God's love and God's acceptance. Look at verse 5. And to the one who does not work. Can I just appeal to you this morning to give up everything you've been counting on? To, to, to do what the Bible says, repent and call it what it is. It was sinful. It is sinful. The starting place is repenting of our sin, to name what we are. We're sinners. We're lawbreakers. Everything we were doing was really making ourselves an idol, thinking we could make ourselves acceptable in some way in God's sight. To the one who does not work. Well, what's the alternative? I told you at the beginning there's only two options, two choices. To the one who does not work but believes in him. Who's the him, Paul? Believes in him who justifies the ungodly. You tell me his name? Who's the one who justifies the ungodly? Jesus. He believes in him. He believes in Jesus. To the one who has faith, who believes in Jesus Christ. That's how you are saved. There's one name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. There's one way. There's one truth. There's one life. There's one mediator. There's not many roads. Can I tell you here, if you're here this morning, listen, would you please hear me very clearly? You must repent of your sin. You must acknowledge that your creator God right now sees you as he does all of us in our natural state. We all have this in common, that we have sinned against him. The Bible says we have treated him as an enemy. We refuse to worship the creator. Instead, we worship the creation. We refuse to give thanks to the creator. Instead, we, we elevate ourselves. And, and the Bible says we're all sinners. And everything you've been trying to do to make yourself acceptable, everything you've been counting and putting in the plus column in your account has been useless and wasted and actually more sin. You need to repent of that. And then the Bible says you don't have to do anything else except believe. And what is believing? It's receiving the gift of grace of salvation. It's repent and believe and you will be saved. And when you are saved, it's 100% a work of God. He saves you. How does that happen? Because of the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. The finished work of the cross is what accomplishes our salvation. I love how he words it here, to him who justifies the ungodly. That's why I love baptism. We're having ours in a few weeks. We moved into a new building in September. We didn't have the lighting in place for the baptismal tank, so you wouldn't see anybody if they're in there. You would just hear splash, splash. And, and so our first set, we got two weekends coming up with baptisms, and I, I just can't wait. Those are, those are the highlight of everything. To hear person after person, as you just experienced for a whole month, give testimony. In one form or another, they're all saying, I was ungodly, and I came to recognize I was ungodly, and I couldn't do a thing to save myself. But God in his grace has forgiven me through Jesus Christ, and I'm standing here to tell all of you that it's all about him and to offer my thanks for his salvation. To the one who justifies the ungodly, his what? His faith is counted as righteousness. Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness. Now, I just want to unpack this a little bit more with some application because I want to talk now to us Christians 
because I think we struggle with this. I just want to explain this a little bit more of how his faith was counted as righteousness by, by going to Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9, which many of you know this verse to have it memorized. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by, tell me, grace, you have been saved through faith, and it's a gift of God, not of yourself, lest anyone should boast. Pretty clear, isn't it? It's not anything you can do. It's not of the flesh. It's not of your work. But now, again, by grace, you have been saved through faith. You're not saved by faith. Now, get this straight. You're saved by grace, through faith. This is really important to understand because what happens as we seek to live the Christian life, we mix up things like justification and sanctification. And we mix up the role of faith in our salvation. And what happens is when we get those things wrong, we start losing the joy of our salvation, our rest in Christ, our delight and our security in Christ. Let me explain it a little bit more. As I live the Christian life, I, I'm to walk in sanctification. Not to earn anything, not to, to gain a standing with God. We've already said I'm saved by Christ's finished work on the cross. I'm justified. But as that has been my reality, I've been declared now no longer guilty, forgiven, and now a saint in Jesus Christ. Now the call is to become in my walk and talk what I'm declared to be in my standing, right? So sanctification is the process of growing in my holiness, in how I think and what I say and how I treat people and how I walk. But here's the problem. We all struggle in that. We all struggle in our sanctification. We sin, we fall, we fail. Sometimes we have these repeated sins that feel habitual and we're all struggling. And what happens is we, we start thinking, there's just no way God could still love me. I've sinned again. I'm caught in this. There's no way he could hear my prayers. There's no way God could use me. There's no way he even cares for me anymore. Because of our struggle in sanctification, we start assuming God's love and acceptance is tied to how we're performing and how we're doing. And that will kill your joy. That will rob you of the peace and the rest you have in Christ. Now, I'm not saying you got a free-for-all to live any way you want. We're not, we're not talking about that in any way. If you're thinking that, I get, a, get out of jail card, okay, I can, we're not, you don't even understand salvation. But can I encourage you to put your hope and confidence in your justification so that when you're struggling in your sanctification, you're not robbed and haven't lost what Christ has intended to give you? I don't know if that connects for you. I pray it does. I found myself far too often over here. I think sometimes maybe it's Satan whispering in my ear, sometimes my own flesh. It's just like there's no way in the world he could still love you. And I need now not my feelings to be the director. I need to go back to the truth that, wait a minute, at the moment I was saved, God himself declared, forgiven, not guilty, righteous, you're my son, you're fully loved, you're fully welcomed, you're fully embraced, my eye is upon you, my care is overwhelming you, and that does not change, even as you struggle in your sin. You know why? Because when he justified me, remember I said past sin and future sin? There was no surprise to God at my justification that I was going to sin in the future. He knew exactly what it would be because he's omniscient. He knows everything. I didn't know. 
But he, he declared his full love and acceptance of me in my justification. And can I just encourage you as you struggle in your sanctification, do not lose sight of the truth of your foundation and your salvation and where your delight and joy. Yes, repent. Yes, be broken over it. Yes, seek to live in holiness. But in all of that, don't lose sight of the fact that God, his love is unconditional. He's Hosea. It never changes. It, it never, as we're unfaithful, as we flee, as we, re, his love is always there and always present. But it's not just there we struggle. It's also with this idea of faith. I have a quote here that really kind of gripped me by John MacArthur. I just want to read this for you. It was not the greatness, now get this, it was not the greatness of Abraham's faith that saved him. I hope you understand this. It was not how strong his faith was that saved him, but rather the greatness of the gracious Lord. Do you get that? It was not your faith being so strong that saved you. It was the greatness of the Lord who saved you in whom he placed his faith. Faith, I love this line, faith is never the basis or the reason for justification. Do you get that? Faith is not the basis or the reason for justification, but faith is the channel through which God works his redeeming grace. Faith is simply a convicted heart reaching out to receive God's free and unmerited gift of salvation. This is why I pointed out to you, you're saved by grace through faith. Because here's why. Just like my sanctification can ebb and flow in good days and bad days and walking with Christ and sinning, so also my faith can ebb and flow. Some days my faith is really strong, but some days it's hardly there. You remember how Jesus said, if you have the faith of a what kind of seed? A mustard seed. Here's a picture of a mustard seed. That's what somebody mentioned at baptism. I love that. You know, when you came to faith in Christ, that's kind of, you had, a, for most of us, we had a tiny little bit of faith. We understood just the basics. I'm a sinner and I need a savior and Jesus is a savior and he's the only way. And There's so much we still had to learn and grow in. But listen, our faith was enough to save us. Is it not true in your life? I know it is in mine. There are some days, sadly I say this, there are some days I wish I had that much faith. Some days due to trials or just other things going on in my life, some days my faith can feel like it's really hard to find. And when that happens, again, the thoughts start going. There's no way God could love me. There's no way his care could be upon me. There's no way he will accept me now. You ever had it where you're praying and it's just like, you're sure it's just like a useless effort and nothing's happening or you're reading God's word and, and I have to read the word and I need, some days you just feed on it and delight, but there are some days, am I the only one? Maybe I shouldn't be a pastor. Some days you pick it up and it's just like, they're just words on a page and, and you feel so guilty and you, this is, ah, what, what's going on, God? And, and in those days, it's just, listen. You're saved by grace, not faith. As your faith adjusts and changes, and sometimes it's so small, remember what your salvation is based on, grace. Grace never changes. Do you get that? That's why it's important you say, by grace, through faith. Faith is just the receiving, feeble little arms, just receiving the gift. What's the gift? Grace. What kind of grace? Much more grace. Abundant grace. Amazing grace. God's grace is always more than what we need. And it doesn't change. Why? Because our salvation is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen. Done. Complete. And as we struggle in our sanctification and as we struggle in our faith, can I tell you, God loves you. Can I just, can I just encourage your soul? 
If you're there and you're struggling, yes, repent of your sin. Yes, get serious about that. Can I tell you, you have not lost being his child. The Father's eye is upon you. His heart is for you. He has loved you with an unconditional, unfailing, never-ending love at the moment of your salvation. And when we understand that, that gives hope to the weary. Amen.